I'm doing a real mic finally. People said, I can't stand you. You sound like you're in a garbage can. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll grow up. So I put a real mic on the, on the process. Everybody's figuring out the technology, man. Yeah, we have to. Yeah. Let me see what, okay, let me do my weirdo entra, uh, intro and then we'll go. Yeah, buddy. And it's called 20 Years in the Desert, the, the project, yeah, right? Yeah, Coachella, 20 Years in the Desert. And you wrote and produced. I was the, I am the executive producer, mm -hmm. and I'm, I uh, helped Chris with the writing. Chris Perkel is our director, mm -hmm. so I have a writing, I have a writing credit, uh, and but Chris is, it's his, his baby from a filmmaking standpoint, for sure. Okay. Here, yeah. here goes my tried and intro, and then you can correct me if it sucks. All good. I'm Patrick Hollick. You're watching and listening, watching or listening to a new episode of The Love Show. My guest today is Raymond Roker, who just executive produced the film Coachella, 20 Years in the Desert, which it plays on YouTube. Yeah. Yep. Is it? That's yep. where it opens? Yeah. It's YouTube Originals is their film, uh, their film imprint, but you can watch it just on regular YouTube. And before we go into that, let's go 1990 Herb Magazine for those that don't know. And uh, you were instrumental in my beginnings, like my very first photo shoot. I don't know what it was we did first, but uh, I think it was like fashion stories. Probably and, a fashion story, I'm sure, right? Yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think before I earned we did up. Stuff. I had Sorry, earned, what was that? I earned up, and then you gave me uh, one of my very early covers, which was Tom York, unless I'm mistaken. It's a great image. Oh, thank you. Well, it was That's like people. One of my favorites still because he's in the bathtub and you, and the coloring and yeah, your stuff. We've loved uh, your stuff. Was always great to have in a magazine because it was always very. It was always unique. It was always you had a signature way of color and portraiture. Still do. You're sweet. Yeah. Um, I remember being terrified because we just watched the documentary where. Radiohead was followed and he was hating everything to do with a camera or media. He was like an early Joaquin Phoenix. And then on our set, he was laughing and enjoying it, invite us to the very front box of his show. He let my team come. He was like this angelic guy. But when we watched the doc, it was like all hating the media and and marketing and, you know, this documentary. Did you ever see that doc they did on Radiohead? I, I didn't. But I, you just know he's very specific, and I, yeah. not prickly to be prickly, but like he's an artiste, and uh, but you've always had a way of like, you've you've had a way with your subjects, uh, so that's not surprising that that you guys went well. And it's funny with Tom, I saw him recently on like Colbert or something, and I was like, he was so like kicked back and sort of laughing a bit, and I was like, I wonder if he's like just in a different phase now where he he seems almost approachable you yeah know? he was very with it. he was warm with us i remember yeah. i remember i was humming like a dun 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 like a jeopardy theme waiting for a polaroid to dry and he yep. thought it was the funniest shit ever and everyone was kind of like well that wasn't that funny but like he enjoyed it and his <laughs> tone changed and i was rushing through setups and he's like what are we hurrying it for and I was like, out of like respect and time, he goes, I'm good. I'm here. I'm with you. And he yep. enjoyed the process. So, But yeah. all that aside, tell me early Herb. You started Herb in 1990? So the first issue came out in December of 1990 at the end of the end of the end of the uh, the uh, uh, the year. And uh, we went monthly and we've, you know, we produced 
until our until our last issue we produced 158 issues of the magazine and we stopped printing the magazine in 2009 it was an incredible run and still very proud of it obviously how did you find yourself uh just running a magazine that's bold you know you and lewis uh barajas from flan yeah were the only yeah. two guys i know that were these self-made hardworking, you know, coming up with a magazine when we were all just kind of fumbling idiots. So, like, how did that, how does a kid like you start his magazine? Like, what's that like? Yeah, yeah, well, you know, uh, I didn't, and I didn't have any, any experience. I I didn't, I didn't go to magazine school or even, uh, even I was barely in college. Um, But so the quick genesis was that I worked at a music retailer at their corporate offices in downtown LA. And I had a friend and we both worked in the same department. We were doing graphic design and like in-store design for signage and different things. And so I was quickly learning like desktop publishing. It was getting really sort of into the whole Mac and uh, moving out of my analog, you know, airbrush days into like technology. And my friend Mark came to me and said, Hey, I want to start this magazine on computer graphics. I came to him a few days later and said, I love the idea of starting a magazine. Let's do something. But like, can we do it on this whole underground culture uh, that I was sort of, I mean, I was just a participant and I was going to parties. I was going to like, you know, speakeasies and raves and whatnot and was into hip hop and was into dance music and sort of in my head that felt like that was a movement for sure. And that's how it started. Um, so he had, he had the mechanics of how to do it. He knew how, he knew how to make a media kit. He knew how to design a page. He knew how to, um, you know, knew where you sort of, how you wrote an editor's letter. He wrote the first editor's letter, but, but I, I was a quick study and I, and I was a good designer in terms of like layouts and photography and stuff. So, and then he bailed after the first issue and sort of left me holding the bag and the rest, you know, the rest I just matured and grew up. But I, your point about like figuring out how to do a magazine, to my my perspective was always about let's make something really high quality. Let's do something that's up to snuff that feels like a proper representation of, of culture. So proper photography. You know, we had a great, uh, I think the photographer's name was Julia Sloan who shot our first cover. And it was this awesome picture of, of Shane Mooney and Jasmine Vega, two sort of like local scenesters and, Shane's dad is Paul Mooney, famous, you know, comedian and Jasmine worked for delicious vinyl records. So like to us, like they were cultural representatives, but we shot it like you would shoot it, they shot it in a studio. It looked great. And, and I think that just set us apart because most things at that point were just sort of like either glossy, couldn't touch them, made in New York, made in London. No one knew where they came from, proper corporate mags, or it was like, <laughs> shitting, you know, newsprint, yeah. second rate sort of stuff. And we were somewhere in the middle, uh, and it, I think it stuck. Paul Mooney wrote Richard Pryor's, some of Richard Pryor's comedy, and Eddie Murphy's yeah. comedy, correct? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and I'm Chris Eddie. Rock. Uh, yeah. I used to see him at Ben Frank's, a long missing spot on Sunset. I think it's Mel's Diner now. But yeah, Ben Frank's I'm is sure. where I used to see Paul. He was quite a presence. Yeah, you know, he was absolutely. A cool man. So, Herb ends. Where do you go? What did, what did you start doing right after the? Uh, and how many years did it run? Nineteen. Nineteen years, man. Nineteen years. Nineteen years. And some of our best years were even like the last, you know, four or five years. I think we were really hitting a stride. Uh, I felt like creatively, 
business was still really tough. Anything from, you know, the mid 2000s, the business started to have challenges uh, because of just the changing landscape of like digital, you know, music consumption and people not really reading reviews anymore and not really depending on music magazine. That said, we started doing things that were more like artistic and idea based and thematics and we were doing themed issues and I was feeling really good about it. And then, you know, um, the underlying foundation was was wobbly and then 2008 recession hit. And frankly, at that point, you know, it was like, you know, the final, like we're already on the ground. It was that like the cap me. in the back of that the head. That killed me. I thought money would never stop. I was living way, way beyond my means. I was buying real estate I couldn't handle. And my mother always would like drive 700 miles to save a dime on socks. And I remember her calling me when the world ended and she's just like, like we are now, we're in another world end and a new yeah. life starting. Yeah. Uh, she's like, do you see? Do you see why I was freaked out? I go, I know, but still I had, you know, pretty good 20 year burn, but it was scary. I remember saying, getting rid of the lease Porsches and all the fucking posing and going, my accountant saying, what do you want? And I said, I want to keep the house. That's it. And I got rid of everything else and kept the house. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Listen, I, I, yeah, I had a, I, I, that was a meltdown. That 2009 was, a, was probably the lowest, the lowest I, I, I would, I would never wish a 2009 on anybody else. Um, you know, that was a year I kind of lost it all, but it was, uh, it was a lesson that I still carry to this day. Um, that, you know, I, I would tell anybody who listens, you know, how to sort of, try to avoid those scenarios but it also is what happens when you you're an entrepreneur and you create things and you're going to have you're going to, things are going to crash and you're going to have bruising but you asked so what I do next I kind of like in 2010 I was mostly kind of consulting and doing a bunch of project based work and uh you know having a decent year and then I got a call from uh an old client of mine who said hey this is opportunity at Red Bull um to go and launch a magazine for Red Bull. And I was kind of like, kind of done with magazines, but it was an interesting opportunity. Red Bull was one of the few companies I had like huge amount of respect for what they were doing with with content. And uh, so I jumped to the opportunity, got the role and helped them launch this Red Bulletin magazine in the US and um, uh, did that for the next two years. Uh, never envisioned that I would be there forever. And, uh, and about two years in, I transitioned out and, um, was sort of thinking about doing my own thing again and then was having conversations with Golden Voice and the Coachella team and thought, and they thought, uh, we both thought that it would be an interesting opportunity to go and create content for Coachella. And that started in 2013 and I'm, I'm still within that company. I work technically on the AEG side, but. Where did you I'm meet still- Paul? Did you meet Paul early on or was it some, somebody yeah. you met later or was that early? I met- I don't. It's funny. I wish I remember. Paul Tillet, who Paul Tillet, the Paul, founder yeah. of uh, Coachella, yeah. Paul Tillet, the founder of Coachella at the time, he had a business partner, Rick Van Santen, who uh, was Paul's partner for Golden Voice. But Paul is, you know, it's really Coachella's his baby in terms of, you know, in his head. But I met Paul in the '90s, pre-Coachella, as probably just kind of on the scene as the person who ran Golden Voice. I mean, I knew Golden Voice from like going to shows, you know, as a kid. Yeah. Uh, as a teenager and um but he was also a client he he tells me the story it's pretty funny he told me not too long ago i remember buying a beastie boys show ad from you and then your magazine came out like a week after the show (laughs) and i still paid you for the ad and i'm like yeah that sounds 
that sounds like you that sounds like your your character um so he was a supporter and then in the mid 90s he started getting into into uh investing in some of the underground parties and we had a we had a closer uh relationship and then early on when he decided he was going to form Coachella in the late 90s uh we were you know in the we were in the beginning we being like my you know me Josh Levine my herb herb and sort of marketing team were part of those early conversations as Coachella was was on the drawing on the drawing board so we, were, we had a first hand first row seat to its launch which was really exciting what was the first act at Coachella was it Pearl Jam what was the first I, I don't recall well so Pearl Jam played on the Empire Polo Fields in, tw- in 1993 as a show, which, you know, in the documentary, obviously we, we talk a little bit about that. I went to that, that wasn't show. Coachella. I went to that. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't, you went to that show. Yeah. Not a lot of people did. I mean, 25,000 people did, but, but ask people today and not everybody knows about that show, but yes, that was a historic show because it christened the grounds as a place to do a big concert like that, but it wasn't, you know, I think there was a, an interest in doing a Coachella probably in the late 90s, but it wasn't until 99 that Coachella became a reality. And that was, you know, six years after. But that was Pearl Jam being there in 93 as a Golden Voice show was why you have a Coachella in 99 that, that launches there. Yeah. What were some of your favorite uh, moments of Coachella personally, not work-wise, when you were, yeah. you know, able to step back and be like, uh, feeling the magic of somebody's somebody's, yeah. pre- you know, because we have an yeah. insider view of entertainment, yeah. and I think yeah. I don't know, not to speak for you, but it takes a lot for someone like me to detach the professionalism and knowing the gags and the tricks yes. to yes. enjoyment. And I yes. love when I get enjoyed. It doesn't happen as often as it used to, being older. But uh, what was some of the acts that did that to you? It's funny because some of the some of the most incredible moments that I've had at Coachella don't make it into the film um, for various reasons. But that's how I know they're they're super personal to me and to many others. But a couple of them. One, there's there was always the the vibe of just walking onto the field early, you know, in weekend one or back in the day when it wasn't a two weekend show. And you just walked on the field and the grass and the perfect temperature and the sort of emptiness or the hidden spaces that you could just sort of make your own like that that never got old i uh, loved arriving and running into people coming towards you in little pieces of pieces of crews and you'd just be like this is a trip and there'd be this enjoyment where you'd all sit at a bench for a little while before it was animal style before it was corporate uh you know or even palooza <laughs> before it was huge uh, and there was a certain innocence to being there and a certain almost like we discovered this and not everybody knows it, but it was also like being maybe at a, at a house or a condo that you're staying out with friends and sort of waking up in the desert, like the whole like desert is just the whole thing has been amazing. But in terms of like on the field, there was a few, few performances that stand out, but I remember like watching Roger Waters in 2008. Um, I think that was eight, 2008 uh where i mean that performance was incredible um you know i I knew i was a little stoned i was like just tripping on the sound everything about it like he was using like crazy surround sound and the whole field was coming to life it was just next level um air the band air the french band air um i remember also sort of like main stage just sort of like luxuriating in that 
Pixies. Um, I got, I was introduced to the Pixies at Coachella. I mean, I knew who they were loosely, but I, I was never a fan, uh, like a listening fan, but like being front and center back in those days, I used to have, I'd always have the, the gold ticket to get around and I would always have a pass that can get me to the front of stage. And I knew, you know, enough people there, those <laughs> moments of being in front of the barricade for shows like the Pixies, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers in 07, those shows were like just massive the scale of the festival the crush of those those fans and just the optics and the sonics of the whole thing it yeah. was just otherworldly um i went with uh ben harper documenting him i did a please bleed video for fun love the criminals yeah. and i documented him and i was running off stage and my friend said wait and then rage followed and that was amazing and then tool followed which was some catharsis where i think even you're talking like, year one is that what that was? Is that I your think one? so. Rage and Tool would have been 99. I don't think Rage and Tool. Rage played in 07, but not Tool, I don't think. Uh, I, I think. just remember the Tool uh, just becoming something else, where it felt like all the electric tents and everyone kind of came outside to see what the deal, what was going on. Yeah. It felt yeah. like that. And that was one yeah. of my moments that I was like, wow, this Tool is a real thing. And I was on my way out. It was Tony Ward who said, wait, 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 wait. Let's see this. Oh, nice. Let's see this. And he stopped me yeah. from running off to work. You know, there's a lot of that. Like, there's a lot of like happy accident discoveries. I, you know, I always always kick myself because typically what would happen for me at Coachella was I would I would learn about a band almost like right at the end of the weekend and fall in love with a band. Like I remember, like the year I sort of like got turned on to Mike Snow, and it was kind of like right after you know, the festival was over and I kind of barely saw them. And then I was like, how did I not see them? Arcade Fire 05 was their first performance. Right after that, I think someone handed me like the funeral album and I was like, how did I not really see them? So I felt like I was actually kind of late on things, um, early on other, early on some things, late on other things, but like um, Coachella is still like, it's always still learning. It's a learning thing for me. Like I, I almost like, I, I kind of consider it my annual little crash university music university where I like, I, you know, I know, I know half the things on the, on the, on the, uh, the curriculum, but I don't know the other half. And I just like so study similar that way. Um, it's amazing. We're similar. Um, what, uh, I started running into you. I started going with different people. My past was always go with like, make sure four artists are playing and I won't have any stoppages, you know? Uh, that's how I would do it. If I didn't have an artist pass, I would just go with a bunch of bands and it gets harder and harder and harder. So you had to have a band everywhere. Um, but I kept running into you and when does this YouTube thing happen where all of a sudden it's almost feels like no one could shoot but YouTube and you're running that show. I kept running into you with multiple camera teams and your own sections. What was going on? Was that this project about to happen or was it documenting just to document it? Yeah, Without it was kind of it was, of a documentary or tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, so when I first got to the company in 2013, the first job was just to sort of like decide what the priorities were going to be. Like I really came into there wasn't really like a structure There was very it was very ad hoc the way we were capturing content. There was the live stream and that was its own beast. And that, that had a very specific mission, you know, just get the show on air, essentially. Um and we were we were in year two of YouTube when I arrived, so we were we were already streaming on YouTube. 
starting in 2011. I was there in 2013. So my job was to go and find all the other stuff. So my first was not like, what's the webcast about? It was more about like, what aren't we filming? Like, oh, why aren't we filming over here? Why aren't we filming more of the vibe? Why are we should do more of this, do more of that. Plus I wanted to like upgrade the whole thing. I wanted to like film with better cameras. Um, I had just, you know, friends and filmmakers and sort of like auteurs that I was like, you know, getting sort of feedback from and sort of bringing into the mix. So we, we just sort of created a coalition of like uh, what we called like the beauty, you know, filming of the festival. We would do the slow-mo and, uh, and drone shots, like right out the gate. We were like obsessed with that type of material. So from like 2013 to 2015 was a, just an, complete overhaul of all that secondary filming mm -hmm. and in this at the same time we were starting to figure out what was in the archive how would we film stuff moving forward what's exciting about this year's lineup and we started building pilots really for the for what we were thinking the doc would be which was going to be more of a series so it wasn't until 2017 that youtube uh expressed real interest in a feature film feature documentary and by 2018, we signed a deal with them to do a feature documentary. And, and then we were going to film 2018 and, and then eventually 2019 very purposefully around creating narratives in the film to bolt on to all the history and the stuff we had sort of shaped in the past. Because we kind of we kind of had a pretty clear idea of how things moved from 99 to 2015. We pretty much had sort of that almost in the can, but we couldn't chart the next five years. And that's where we ended up sort of that makes the second half of the film essentially. Were you gonna shoot? Oh, sorry. Hold on. I lost your I'm audio. Doing that. Yeah. No, I didn't lose oh. it. I pushed oh. mute so you get a clear stream. Oh. If you oh, don't, got I it, kind of interrupt it. you. Um, <laughs> what was I gonna say? Did you uh, have any intention of shooting twenty, or you were locked and loaded? You were ready to go because it's interesting to me that Rage was early, early on, and Rage was going to be your headliner, uh, twenty twenty, right? Yeah, but were you gonna rage? Shoot rage it still, rage still is the headliner. We just have to, we just have to put the show on. Um, we, we, it actually made a ton of sense that 2018 was going to be the year that we went out and were sort of making what would be sort of the 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 timestamp of the film. Like clearly, it was going to be a 20. It's really a 40 year look, right? As we start with gold essentially so you froze um you froze knew a sort of the you, chapters you froze What's that? a little you froze a little oh bit. sorry yeah. i froze okay it's okay let me start again yeah. am i better now yeah you're fine okay we 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 knew that we wanted sort of 2018 to be a little bit of the like bookmark because beyonce performing was such a profound thing and it wasn't until we finished filming 2018 that we decided to film 2019, which would really be a full 20 years in the desert. And so, and, and it ended up really being interesting because 2019 brought us Billie Eilish and Blackpink and Bad Bunny and Jay Belvine. And it's like, those things were sort of not in the roadmap in our heads until they became the festival. And I think there's such, there's such great reminders of like the constant movement of culture and the constant evolution that Coachella has been through because Beyonce in some ways was was a very sort of fitting 20 year mark but the next 20 years won't be created by a beyonce they'll be created by a billy eilish you know and uh and uh summer walker and like what a whole you, new stable what did you feel about the ariana grande 
moment. I I felt like that was missing a mark. There was something wasn't there for me with Coachella. And I don't know why. It just didn't feel like... I understand the Billie Eilish, and I understand Beyonce. I didn't understand Ariana Grande's uh, I, show. I think the way I think the way I look at, at at Ariana Grande is a 25-year-old at the time phenom and force of of creativity and anything that gets you to the pinnacle at that age as a woman. There's, there's a lot that went into that process, both in what your creative output was to, to make people care, but also just how you managed your, your career and your, and your, and your, your personal brand and to do it in a way that, that feels at least to the outside, fairly independent and not necessarily packaged. And, and I, and subsequently, and I, I was not deep on her. I, I, I knew that she held a lot of sway with a lot of people both in the pop world, but also just in the, you know, music and dance world and whatnot. But then I watched, I actually watched a show with her in, uh, at the O2 in London some months back. And I was like, man, she's really phenomenal just in terms of just everything about it, the way her productions are, her voice. Maybe so, it was just that show. I didn't feel anything from the show. I, I tuned yeah. in on, I started tuning in old man style since like, I don't know, 17 or 18 and watching the first weekend a bit on YouTube, just picking the acts yep. I like, getting the reminder. Great way to watch it. <laughs> it's great, yeah. I don't have to deal yeah. with all the stuff, you know? Um, Absolutely. It's great to watch it that way. Yeah. And nothing wrong with that. But it didn't, I um, don't know. I got the Eilish thing. I don't know. I'm not uh, um, anti-Ariana Grande by any means. I just yeah. didn't, I didn't connect with it. I didn't feel like... It, it felt like it was bigger. There have bigger, been big acts. It was yeah. bigger than, like, Beyonce yeah. landed in this perfect moment. And then it felt like, let's do it again with Ariana Grande. And it wasn't a hit for me. It was more like the accident of the Billie Eilish was that moment in a different way. It's, it's interesting. It's a hard I mean, thing, it's funny. though, we to act. I, I mean, it's impossible almost. And I was excited had... to hear Rage was coming back. You know, that was interesting again. Yeah, we've had headliners. We've had headliners uh, that that... And again, I'm not the jury on this, but we've had headliners that that the perception is that they get upstaged by second stage acts. Yeah. It happens, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Beyonce's a rare breed. Very. Uh, yeah. There's not. There's no others. There's no other Beyonces, right? Uh, it's hard for anybody to overshadow her, but for everybody else that takes the main stage, it's there could be somebody in, in like Sahara or Mojave or outdoor that are going to be the buzz that people are talking about in some ways, maybe louder. It's hard to predict. That's the dynamic of the moment we're in. Things can really sort of bubble up in a very quick manner. Uh, Maybe more, not maybe more so than any time in history. I think, you know, tell me about the writing process. You got such a monster. How do you sit down and kind of format 20 years and get a narrative of any sort? I mean, that's tough. So Chris Perkel, the director of the film, was meticulous about creating what the story framework was going to be. He leaned on me and and Paul for reflections of what the history was, first person sort of perspective and witness of what the history and what Golden Voice's story was, what was behind certain performances and all that. He got a ton of that from the interview 
that he did with Paul, the interview he did with me, and then plenty of conversation. But from a structural, how does this, you know, I'd go into his, his studio and there were just like, you know, these index cards, this connected to this, this led to this, this informed that, that wrapped around back to this. And, and so, I, you know, that's all in his head. I think we were there to sort of like call bullshit on stuff or say, you're reading that wrong in our opinion, like this is more, this is really what the Cascade performance meant. This is what a track when he talks about Tiesto, this is sort of, this is more con context for what he's talking about because um, you know, we just had lived it. And, um, but the writing process was very, that's why, you know, some of the favorite stuff that I liked is not in the film. Like I, you know, I really wanted X performance cause I thought it was amazing, but that didn't fit into the structure that, that, that Chris felt was going to really make this watchable and the process. And it's really funny because it just shows you like a good filmmaker's genius is really seeing that roadmap at before you see it. <laughs> and you're then thankful for it because if he had listened to everything I said about put this here, put this there, like it, I don't think would have necessarily been the film that it is and, and keep people's attention and the way even his editorial team, a team effort obviously but the editors the way that they blended in and out of performances at just the right point to where you really got a taste of what the performance was mm -hmm. but you also kept moving maybe you weren't familiar with the band but you're still <laughs> enough to like learn about it and move on to the next thing it's very hard you there's 24 2500 bands that have played the I festival over 20 years yeah to con condense that down to like 60 or so that are in the film in some way or another did you get any like uh yeah. little chime-ins on twitter or social media going where's so-and-so or no where's ariana we got a lot of that we got a lot of that. Like they weren't, there was definitely fans that weren't happy that, that she's sort of like uh, just B-roll and not really a performance. Um, there were people, but we got a lot, we covered a lot. So it's hard to find, hard to make a case for, I mean, plenty of people that have a band that's not in there. That said, we covered a lot of what people really felt passionate about in Coachella history. And maybe if we missed one thing, but we gave you Daft Punk and Madonna, you know? Uh, and so like, I think on balance, I actually read a ton of commentary and I think on balance, there wasn't like a whole, like, Oh, you guys really messed this up or got this wrong. Or how did you miss this? But there were definitely a fair amount of people that said, where's, where's Ariana? You, you, you didn't do her justice, which, uh, you know, yeah, I don't yeah. think they're. I don't think they're wrong. I think like she deserves everything, you know. But uh, in the she's in not the story, uh, failing it, in it, any way. She doesn't need. No, anything. she's not failing, and she's fine. I checked <laughs> in with be her fine. I, before I got on. I texted her. She's yeah. good. Um, when did you learn you weren't going back for the 2020? When did you get the call that you that none of us wanted to get about this new uh, world we're living in? Um, probably like. Um, a minute or five minutes before you got it. Like, honest, it was time stuff it, when it was in the press, essentially, you know, I mean, truthfully, you know, we probably had a day. There were others, I'm sure, that had less time and there were people that maybe knew for a week. I don't know. Um, what are the dates? What are the, what's the first weekend dates normally? Uh, oh, uh, in April? Yeah, I, don't, I haven't lost track on when. Oh, in April, it's always the second and third weeks, of essentially, April. of April. Yeah, uh, every year. Sometimes it changes a little bit because of Easter or some other 
because uh, we always have we have two Coachellas and then we have Stagecoach. So it's we, pr- we have to think about whatever that cons- consecutive three week block that'll give you Stagecoach, but not put Stagecoach on Easter or, you know, yeah. Have you seen the Beastie documentary? Did you did you see that? I need to watch it. I really want to watch it. it uh, yeah, I just watched. It I haven't seen night. it yet. It's interesting yeah. how they did it as like a performance yeah. in front of a thing. I thought I wanted to get your thoughts. What are they saying for coming back? Um, are they are they flirting around with dates, or is that still just too much in the air? Or is our, there something? Our date are no, our dates are on the calendar. Um, we're, we're we have we have dates and we've got tickets in the marketplace and we have a show uh, um, um, that we plan on doing. But when is that? You know, October fifteenth, twelfth to fifteenth or something, twelfth or twelfth to fourteenth for the first weekend. Somewhere around that. You gotta check the calendar, but the second weekend of October. Yeah. Um and like anybody we're we're continuing to uh to monitor the situation and listen to the health experts. How have you been handling it personally with uh, you're promoting your movie and you're in Estevan yeah. and I just talked about this because Estevan's got I LA did, originals going on. I did watch LA originals, man. Props to Estevan. Yeah. And I know you've got great history with those guys as, as, as do I, uh, and Mr. Cartoon, who I remember from like, we, we were both at LA trade tech together when he was, he was there. And wow. he was, I remember when he was flamed from WCA, man, an incredible, incredible artist. So ahead of his time and, and so good. Just like, I mean, he's, he says it in the film, like he's, he has a gift, it's a gift from God, you know? Yeah. Um, and Esteban, just like nice dude, you know, nice as most humble guy. Uh, but yeah. Um, oh shit. What was the Irony, <laughs> like <laughs> about <laughs> promoting a movie when you're not allowed to go outside. Oh I guess yeah. No, that was, is... that was a drag. That was a drag. We had a big premiere. You would have been invited. Like there was a, you know, we had a lot, we had a lot of, uh, we had a lot of plans. We, I want to screen it. I, you know, we, we got a chance, luckily, thank thank goodness, we got a chance to do a few screenings in the theater for um, friends and family. My mom got to see it like in a in a in a uh, post facility in a really nice screening room, um, and then we showed it at the Regal Cinemas at LA Live to uh, maybe about forty staff. Um, but the fact that we weren't able to then continue doing that is 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 sad. Um, and hopefully, once the air clears, yeah, we will do some screenings. Um, I want to see but, that. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, it's a nice way to see it. I, I, I'm not going to lie. Like, there's something special, especially a film like this, the scale. So, I would recommend if you watch it, uh, put it on the biggest screen you've got, get the best sound, put headphones on if you want, mm-hmm. and really go in because it's best enjoyed like that. Mm-hmm. What's next yeah. for you? What are you working on? What's the focus now that you put this big thing together? Yeah. What are you what are you getting into now? We're working on a ton. I mean, as a company, like we're busy, right? Even though we don't have live shows right now, we are we are incredibly busy uh in on innovation discussions. Um I'm busy personally working on a lot of development of other projects. Uh there's other films that um are on paper that we want to get made. There are other series. There's some we we have a series in production right now, an animated series we're doing right now that hasn't really been announced, but we're working on it. We've got some other brand projects. I work a lot. AG Studios, which is a division that I oversee, is a brand content studio, but also original content studio. So we're working with some brands on some cool stuff. Um, my days have been slammed. They've been busy and and creative and full of very like whiteboard discussions. It's really exciting. Uh, even in light of like this hellish 
sort of reality that we're going through that will unfortunately uh, continue to sort of unfold before it gets better, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, dude, thanks for taking the time. I know you're you're moving and shaking. I'm really proud of you. Congratulations. Thanks, man. I watched it right away, and it was exciting because I'm, like everyone else, I'm captive. So I was like, this is like fake going somewhere, and I get to go, you know, not go see Coachella for right now. You know, I was excited. So. Well, I appreciate your art, and and I still uh, I'm still the proud owner of some of your work, Good. and um, you know keep doing what you're doing. And I want to I want to give you props too for being for being uh, out on this sort of new media exploration because I've watched you move through trying different different ways of bringing your expertise and your conversations to the table. I think it's awesome because. You, you got to attempt all of this stuff and you got to be bold and brave to try stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to give you a lot of credit because I watch you and then it gets me pumped where I, you know, I need to I do my video show. I didn't yeah, do this, and so. you did it for me. Uh, I was a kid with a camera and I was trying to figure it out. And you're like, here's this story. I'm like, Oh, what? And this is a fashion <laughs> story. It has to be a cohesive. You're like, okay. And you know, we all kind of do that. And like you and I, we, we're never really content with just sitting around. We got to do something and express something. And, you know, everyone's like, how did that happen? You're like, by fucking up and making a lot of wrong turns. And then, you know, I landed in this. 100%. You know, they don't talk about the 6,000 jobs I don't get a year. They just see the big one and say, how'd you know them? (laughs) Yeah, 100%, man. But um, congratulations and have a good day. And uh, good luck with the stuff. And I hope I get to see you out in the fields in, in, is it October? October. All right, man. Let's make it happen. All right. Talk to you soon, bro. See you, Patrick. Thanks, man. Yes. Bye. Bye. That'll bring us to the end of another episode of The Love Show. Thank you for listening, and to all the patron supporters, thank you, as well as uh, a lot of people have been leaving reviews, which is highly appreciated. If you can, share the podcast on a story on Instagram or with a friend if you like it. Um, stay safe, wash your hands. Uh, I think we're going into week eight with the crisis. Uh, throw me a comment on how you're spending your time in the bunker. I'm just doing really long walks. As many times as you've heard this song before, you possibly were not aware of the fact that there's a story behind this song. And to the best of my knowledge, it's a true story about a young man who's a junkie. He's been mainlanding heroin just a little bit too long. But now he finds himself in a hospital, and he's trying to kick that habit. And while he was in the hospital, he met a girl. And as time wore on, they fell in love. But the doctors felt that this love affair was kind of a crutch to him, and wasn't doing his cure very much good. So they decided to move her to another hospital. But shortly after she got there, she committed suicide. Now keeping the story in mind, when you listen to the words to this song, maybe this time you'll hear it just a little bit differently. Just yesterday morning, they let me know you were gone. Susan, the plans they made put an end to you I walked out this morning 
and wrote down this song I just can't remember who to send it to Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you again You look down upon me, Jesus You got to help me make a stand You just got to see me through another day My body is aching And my time is at hand I just can't make it any other way Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you again I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you again Working my mind through an easy time My back turned to the sun Lord knows when the cold wind blows, it'll turn your head around And all those times on the telephone lines, we talked about things to come Sweet dreams of flying machines and pieces on the ground Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you, baby One more time Again